important. It's it's yeah. uh, uh, has many. It has uh, it's what, what see. It's too early in the morning. I can't think of words. This is the problem. <laughs> well, words aren't important. Word, that's right. It's just a podcast, right? Hey, welcome to the Smash Up Derby. This is well, your host, Jonathan Kassam. I'm here with uh, my co-host, Sam Smucker, uh, virtually. And uh, literally in my house is my friend Don Stanger, a uh, former UPS worker and Teamster activist. Say hi, Don. Hi. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Sam. And hi, Don. I'm still talking to you from uh, Athens, Ohio today. And... Uh, Athens, Ohio. I drove through Athens, Ohio once, ages and ages ago. Yeah, it's a beautiful little uh, town, sort of a entry, the entry point into Appalachia, into Southern Ohio. It's and it's where my my uh, half of my family has ended up here. As my brother is now a professor at the University of uh, or at Ohio University, which is located right. here. But um, so Jonathan and I have some some personal, some big personal news. We've been teasing out sort of my. Uh, my travels around uh, the country as I uh, move and switch uh, switch jobs. <laughs> and by the country, you mean the central Midwest. I, what I mean, yes, I mean the lower Midwest, really. <laughs> um, but uh, but the but the real big news before we before we drop the um, you know the cliffhanger here uh, on my on my story. The real big news is that Jonathan Kassam was just hired as the director of communications for the United Electrical Workers, the union. Yes. Yeah, so and, uh, con- congratulations, Jonathan. Thank you. And, means- uh, and I'll be moving to the Paris of Appalachia, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, I know. And Pittsburgh <laughs> is a beautiful place and, and the headquarters of the United Electrical Workers Union. So, so that is super exciting for Jonathan. And um, we'll also, that will, it's also exciting for our podcast because it means we have we're going to have access to all kinds of great um, UE people. Uh, hopefully, that we'll be able to have yeah. on our podcast, and Jonathan will have access to all kinds of UE archives and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. The archives are at the University of Pittsburgh. So right. So that'll be uh, that'll be very cool. And then uh, and my story is that I am on my way back to graduate school in film studies. At Southern <laughs> Illinois University, uh, you know, sort of retiring once again for the, about the fifth time uh, into a new <laughs> career. So that so that will uh, give me um, more time to uh, to sort of schedule podcasts, I suppose, or more flexibility at least, if not more time. So, uh, right. so I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be um, uh, it's it's a new adventure. And, right. and, and you will bring a new, like, filmic, uh, 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 cinematic, uh, dramatic capacity. That's right. A cinematic to capacity podcast. to podcast. <laughs> Man, that fade in in the last, uh, last episode. That's right. Well, we'll see. I promise not to talk too much about film on our podcast. This, is, this podcast is not, uh, it's not a film podcast. And, right. You know, it's not very filmic. But no. uh, we've got lots of other good stuff to talk about. Yeah. So, well, Jonathan, you were at the DSA convention, briefly at least. A couple weeks <laughs> I was ago. I was in Chicago. I was at a lot of the parties. You were at the parties. That's right. That's yes. right. Well, and there were there were a lot of parties. So. There there were. Did, so so Sam and you were actually at the convention. I was on the convention floor. Yeah. That's right. I was a delegate. Right. So. Yeah. Um, so did you, the the important question? Did you have any malort? I'm sorry. Say that again. Did I? Did have you have it? any malort or malort or however you pronounce that stuff? I don't even know what that is. 
You don't know what that is? No. What is that? It was all over the Twitters, man. Oh, man. See, I'm not plugged into the Twitters enough. Uh, what, what is Malort? It's it's some like nasty bitter liqueur that's only made in Chicago and mostly oh. only drunk in Chicago and mostly drunk by Chicagoans getting their visitors to tricking their visitors into drinking it. Oh, okay. No, I did not have <laughs> any, nor did I even hear about it. So <laughs> it was apparently the official drink of the convention. Is that right? Well, I missed out. I was not that plugged into the convention, apparently, even though it was sort of all I did for about 10 days prior to and at the convention. But So, Jonathan, from a distance, did you get a feel for what, you know, uh, the accomplishments uh, of the con- convention or... I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was very, you know, it was very exciting to see, uh, you know, all of uh, uh, the the excitement and, uh, you know, particularly the, the how young it was, although it was a little weird because I feel like there were almost no people our age there. Very few. Like, I, it's sort of donut. There were like all these, there were like a handful of 60-year-olds and then all these, uh, you know, 17-year-olds. Exactly. Yeah. There was clearly this older generation, um, people in their late 60s or 70s. Uh, and and they were there, and then and then the vast vast majority were people in their you know late twenties, early thirties, nice. um, and even younger. Um, so and and as I was walking down the streets of Chicago after the convention, like I just had instinctively every twenty year old that I walked past, I assumed was some sort of socialist because right. I'd just been completely surrounded by. <laughs> 20-year-old socialist for, or however, 25-year-old socialist for, like, four days. Oh, you know, I did have, like, a random conversation um, with, uh, you know, a, a, a 20-year-old working in the store who was, you know, asking what I was doing in town, and, and he was like, yeah, I mean, he was clearly kind of a socialist. I mean, he didn't know it yet, but he, <laughs> he, he sort of identifies, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we need that. Yeah, right. He right. actually said sort of, well, we need some... You know, he said we need some elements of socialism and some elements of communism and some elements of capitalism. So you know, he wasn't like right. didn't didn't have the the, the proper ideological Not line rigid. developed. Not rigid, yet. <laughs> right. Well, so here's the thing: is that you know, I think for those of us who spent a lot of our lives in, or our formative years at least during the Cold War, like what a weird response that is because you know during the cold war it was just you were it was reflexively anti-communist right so just this idea that somebody would sort of off the hand say oh we need elements of socialists you know that was just not you know it's been it's been a long journey culturally to where that has just disappeared among a giant chunk of the population yeah Um, yeah and it's always it's continues to be surprising to me when I hear people talk that way, uh, because it is really different. If you've listened to the last three podcasts, we just did nothing but talk about DSA. And so I think, you know, I don't want to overkill it here because we've <laughs> so, really so let's wrap it up. saturated our audience with DSA stuff. But, um, you know, just to follow up, uh, you know, the Democratic Socialist Labor Commission got passed uh, with, you know, there's always some drama, but it got passed. Uh, right. The thing that Julia and Max talked about on episode seven, I believe. Right. Um, and didn't all... Didn't all three of the NPC candidates that we had on our podcast get elected? They, in fact, did. Yep. Joe Schwartz, yep. Uh, Chris Masano, Ravi Ahmed, they were all elected. Um, See? That, the, the power of our the podcast. The power of our podcast. <laughs> we put them over the top, without a doubt. Um, yeah, and the, and the NPC elections were very balanced. So it was, I believe, there were five people from that momentum 
a slate got elected four people from the... Oh, no, I'm getting it mixed up. It's six people from the Momentum, five people from the Praxis slate, four independents, who, all of whom were older. Um, so that was a little bit of a surprise to me, that Joe, Joe, who's clearly from the older generation, but also Joe I wasn't surprised about. I knew he would get elected. Right, right. But the, there were four other people who were... You know, very important administratively in the DSA, they were all elected. So the young people didn't completely throw out the uh, the older generation. It wasn't a complete like um, sort of revolution in that sense. Um, they kept on the woman who uh, who ran the entire convention, sort of the the woman who did Robert's Rules. They kept on the mm-hmm. woman who who did the books for DSA for many and years. That's, that's important. That is important, that, and it shows a certain you know a certain. Uh, wisdom, right? That you're, right. you know, it's not all about politics. You better keep around the person who understands the finances of the yeah. whole thing. Because DSA is now an organization with over a million dollar a year budget and this sort of thing. So, and then there was one, there was an, there was a slate that came up very late called uh, Friends and Comrades, and one person got elected off of that slate. And that was the the sixteenth person. So, yeah. um, Friends, Friends and Comrades. Yeah, that's what it was called. It was sort of a libertarian socialist slate. Ah, okay. Um, and and they, they were able to get one person elected. Uh, you know, so the other important things that happened um, was that th- there were questions about dues and how the dues were going to be increased and or, or, or moved to monthly. I think all of that really got punted to the NPC, the National Political Committee, to decide. Uh, I think there's a general sense of what everybody wants, but the resolutions there were too complicated. There was too much division over them. And I think in the end, people just said, let's let the MPC decide. I can't remember. I I believe there was uh, finally they did pass a resolution on dues and structure, but it was a very uh, soft one. It was sort of a encourage the MPC to look at different things like monthly dues and increasing the dues levels and that sort of thing. The other, the other sort of more important political things that, um, you know, that occurred were the, the people who wanted to move DSA towards being more of a socialist party. Um, that those resolutions were all defeated resound, resoundingly, and so mm-hmm. um, the DSA will remain, you know, a more of an activist organization, where people from from which people will run for office, you know. Um, right, right, and right. Identify themselves as DSA, but it won't be a political party in and of itself. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's always been the in- interesting aspect of DSA, and that it's right, got this right. flexible thing. And of course, they're getting people elected all over the place, uh, which is pretty, right, right. pretty surprising. Um, and, and including just having DSA, having elected officials join DSA, which is what happened in St. Louis recently. And I, I'm not going to get into it, but what. Uh, People in St. Louis will know, I think, know this already, that one of the aldermen in, in St. Louis joined DSA recently. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So anyway, um, so that's uh, that's my quick my quick summary of, of sort of the, the political stuff. I, in general, I, incredibly successful. I, I think people left yeah. very enthusiastic. Um, and, and I did and I did at the Jacobin Party get to hear the um, the uh, the. Jeremy Corbyn chant uh, mm. chanted to the White Stripes, and I know you sent this to me, and um, we'll lay that in right, right here. You're going to hear it, right, and, and then and then the Posadas from the. Right, and then and then the Posadas from the Corbynists. Yeah. I, 
which is kind of awesome. I have no idea what that means because he's <laughs> like it's some some uh, uh, it's like space dolphins, socialist space dolphins. Right. I mean, there is some hilarious stuff on Twitter <laughs> around DSA. It's no wonder it's grown so fast, partly just because there's some really creative, funny people doing uh, right. interesting stuff. But um, there's the uh, I know there's a, um, a Martian caucus, a Martian DSA chapter that has a Twitter <laughs> account. And constantly posts about you know infighting on Mars yeah. and that sort of thing. So, but no, I mean, I was I was actually I, you know all the people I met, I was really impressed by their like their seriousness and their flexibility and um, you know I think uh, uh, you know some of the fears of of uh, you know that not only my fears but that you know I saw other people expressing um, on Twitter that you know there's so much Twitter snark um, being so. Uh, kind of central to the image of DSA that people would be like that in person, but in fact, in fact, they weren't. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> reasonable. Once everybody got in the room together, it was a little more reasonable. People were more right, reasonable. Right. But there is a twist. I mean, and, and there continues to be, you know, issues that are going on. I don't know if you picked this up, but there's some issue uh, around yeah. one of the NPC candidates and so forth. But this stuff, I, I feel like, will get get itself sorted out. It's not a it's not a crisis for the organization. I'm sure it's a crisis for that person, but it's, um, you know, I think the organization will right. continue one way or the other. So. Um, all in all, success. All in all, success. Actually, I did the the one thing I did here. You know, I, I saw, I picked up on Facebook. Just older, some of the older people were unhappy. Uh, who are you know not that active, maybe longtime DSA members were sort of shocked by the, um, you know, some of the resolutions that were passed, um, and being a little more radical than than the DSA has been in the past. But that. You know, I think that's inevitable. Um, right. Young people are taking over, and young people tend to be, you know, tend to push the, the limits a little more. So, um, all right. Well, okay. that's that's the story uh, from from DSA land. Um, all right, we were going to do a new feature. You want to introduce our new our new feature? This. So, our, our new our new feature is uh, is people smarter than us. Yes. This is a, a way to create endless amount of uh, talking on our podcast because <laughs> we're going to find endless number of people smarter than us. But how does this feature work, Jonathan? How, how are we going to make this? Uh, we just sort of bring in something, uh, you know, something interesting that we that we saw or listened to or read over the over the last week or or uh, a month or however long it took us to get our act together since the last podcast. Um, so do you want to do you want to start, Sam? So let's see. I have uh, my my people smarter than us or uh, example or, or uh, offering for this week is a podcast out of England called Labor Days. And uh, but Labor Days with a U, right? Because they're from England. Because right? Because they're from England. And and they've had they've <laughs> done about they've done about as many podcasts as we have. They're around ten or so. Their podcast, though, is much smarter than ours. <laughs> Let's just say that. They're, they, they're, these folks really know labor inside out, but they do current stuff as well. So their first episode was about uh, workers at a cinema, in, I believe in London, who were organizing, and some people had gotten fired and so forth. So it's a, that's a great story. But they, they do a whole episode uh, that's about an hour and a half long on craft unions in England, um, so really, a really interesting listen. So if you're into labor history, uh, this is a good one for you. Um, and they, they take a deep dive. I mean, they really get into the nitty gritty of labor history. And awesome. the, like in that craft, craft uh, 
one, they, they, they talk about all these different old craft unions that existed and what they can't, you know, half of them, they can't figure out what they are, but um, right, like puddlers or whatever. <laughs> exactly. They go through this whole list of jobs that they can't identify, um, <laughs> which is pretty, it was pretty funny. But um, anyway, so that's, a, you know, listen for them. You can find that anywhere. Labor Day's uh, podcast. You can get it on iTunes and so forth. All right, Jonathan, have you got one? And so, you know, I think my people smarter than us for this past weekend was, uh, you know, on my, uh, my morning run yesterday, I was listening to uh, a show, uh, an, an episode of uh, Katie Halper's podcast that she put up late Saturday night uh, with this guy, Jack Smith the Fourth, I think, uh, who was reporting from Charlottesville. And um, it was just really interesting, you know, after kind of all the, uh, you know, kind of shock and horror about um, the woman who got killed on Saturday, um, being able to like go in and, and he really sort of broke down like what the what the right wing was trying to do last weekend in Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of really trying to kind of uh, ideologically purify themselves and sort of hold Trump and the Republicans accountable mm-hmm. to the right to sort of white nationalism because they felt that uh, that that the Republicans had been um, you know not really and Trump have not really been carrying out a white nationalist program enough for them. Um, and, and yeah. so he, he also kind of broke down all the infighting between them, how like the, the, uh, the, the militia constitution types think that the white nationalists are all like identity politics and, uh, <laughs> and all this, uh, you know, kind of like, um, kind of, it, there's, there's actually a lot of in, infighting and lack <laughs> of coordination on the right. Right. Um, which is why they, they in fact were kind of like losing until that guy, that asshole that uh, you know ran into the, ran his car into the crowd. What um, and where where was that published? So that's on the, the the Katie Halper show. Which, oh, it was on uh, Katie Halper, right? Yeah, yeah, which you can find um, on on the internet. All right, awesome. <laughs> you, you, well, you use the Google. Right. Well, we'll we should put uh, links to both of these uh, yeah. both of these podcasts uh, to Labor Days and then also to that that uh, episode of Katie Halper. Uh, we'll yeah. we'll put those up on our website so that which is mashuppodcast.com. Yes, that's right. Don't forget little promotion in there. Don, do you do you have a you can you come up with a people smarter than us? Um, sure, I can come up with one. All right. I, I've been I've been reading uh, to try to help my body out after all those years at UPS, and uh, I've been reading a book by Stuart McGill or or reading. Uh, uh, well, that's all. Watching videos online, basically. I can't really even claim to have read the book. But there's like four core exercises that are very different from what everybody hears about with crunchies and sit-ups and all that stuff. And they actually help stabilize your spine when you've been injured with a lifetime of physical labor for the corporations. Oh, wow. (laughs) So So that's what I've been doing lately in my first year of retirement. Awesome. (laughs) Trying to repair the damage. What's the name of the – this is like a physical therapist who's got the videos? Um, I I think he's an actual doctor at a Canadian university. And uh, on YouTube, you could look for the – what the heck is it called? The big – the core three, the core four exercises – Okay. Um, that's the way to go. All you UPS workers out there, get on that. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> You're that, need it. That probably goes for nurses and, um, you know, anybody who does a lot of heavy lifting during their job. I think probably everyone, even people who just sit for a living. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Uh, that's awesome. We'll put links to all of those on our on our website. Um, Dawn, you've, you're on our podcast today to uh, start talking with us about the uh, about your life at UPS. So that's a great segue into that. So. And so, uh, so our guest today is is my friend Dawn Stanger, and uh, we're having her on um, because she was a participant in the. The UPS strike in 1997 that happened 20 years ago uh, this month. I know Don from uh, the Vermont Worker Center and the Vermont Labor Movement, and, uh, and we probably met during the uh, UPS strike. Uh, well, I, I actually wasn't in Vermont yet. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, yeah, oh, you would have been there. I, I was. Yeah, I would have been there. I was. I was at the picket lines in Iowa, but. Right. Um, uh, but there was no one that no one as cool as you there. So, um, and, uh, so Don and I have been, uh, you know, comrades in the labor movement in Vermont for a long time. And, um, and so, uh, welcome to the podcast, Don. Thank you. To talk about your life at UPS. Like when did you start working there? What did you do? Um, sure. I'll start off and you can interrupt me if you yeah, yeah, want yeah. a particular question. Or make a really bad joke. Right. <laughs> I'll make some. Um, I started in 1990. Um, I can't believe how long it's been. I mean, for you young people out there, time passes very quickly. Uh, 20 years, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like it just happened. It changed my entire life, the UPS strike, uh, truly. Uh, I started at UPS in 90. I had been working full time for about the same amount of money that I could get there for 20 hours a week. So. I felt kind of lucky. I mean, the wages in Vermont are low. It was a Teamster job. Mm -hmm. And even though it was, I think, nine bucks an hour, it way beat out everything around here. And I was able to then continue to work at home because my husband was in construction, working 60 hours a week. And, you know, somebody needs to do the home stuff. And it worked out great at first, but I got there and I was like, wow, this is like bizarrely difficult. Like, I think I cried twice my first week. I mean, oh, people were mean. Uh, they didn't have enough time. Everything comes down that conveyor belt. It's like Lucy in the candy factory. I remember using that, uh -huh. that the Lucille Ball show and those old films of her and the conveyor belts running all the candy off the end. And she's <laughs> right, 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 like, right, right. It's just everything's too fast and people are mean. Uh, I just was shocked by the just the general atmosphere in there. We called it Thunderdome. Mm. Well, uh, so how, how was the setup? So were you loading off of a conveyor belt into trucks, or what? Were yeah, you doing? we had all the. We ought to, they don't call them trucks. I have no idea why there's some weird thing <laughs> at UPS about trucks, but we call them package cars. Hmm. And uh, they are lined up to a loading dock, and basically one loader will run back and forth from that conveyor belt loading stuff into, like I had Charlotte, two Shelburne's, and a Ferrisburg, <laughs> different towns that only have one UPS truck that goes to them every day. And so everything that came down the belt, I had to memorize the streets and the order. That was before the computers came in, believe it or not. Wow. Now they don't have to memorize right, everything. Right, right. But um, yeah, and run. And, and I mean, you'd have stacks of packages, uh, high as could be, that would like fall over on you that you just wouldn't have time to. And there just wasn't enough time. You do like I want to say like 250 packages an hour trying to cover this area that's, you know, not small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it was just crazy and I felt abusive. I'm kind of a boss's daughter. Mm -hmm. And so I never hesitated to sort of speak up. 
And because I was a hard worker, they put up with me for a while. <laughs> for a while. <laughs> so, so were you? Um, so you would load the trucks, but then would you deliver as well, or did you? No, 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 no. I was just part time. Our shift would start at like three thirty in the morning and oh. go until the drivers got there, and there was like a fifty cent an hour differential for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Three. Yeah. <laughs> So what do yeah, you do no. at what do you do at three? I mean, how does your how does your work schedule go? If you're up at what two? What did you get up at two thirty, two forty five? Yeah, yeah. At first, I mean, the hours have changed over the years, and it's very different now. Uh, I think they start at like five now because of the air packages not getting to the airport until late. Mm. Ah. So my shift doesn't run as long. There's more people, but it's even shorter hours than it used to be. So people are getting fewer hours. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But doing as much, probably. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, it's not a it's not a kind place to work, and and I I don't see that it's going to get better. The Amazoning of the the nation is going to probably make things even worse. Mm. But initially, um, I was just impressed to have a union until I started seeing those huge deductions out of my paycheck, and I you know I found. Um, that there were many differences amongst union locals across the country. And there, and in Vermont, we had a particularly huge initiation fee for, pe- for people of $600. And those are people making 9 bucks an hour for 20 hours a week. It would come out in chunks of 50 or $70. So there was a lot of very disgruntledness right, about right, the right. union that I didn't expect when I first started there. And, and a lot of misinformation and no information. Um, the Teamsters were uh, what rank and file activists would identify as a bureaucratic or top down <laughs> union, very male run. My entire workplace was mostly male. Almost all the bosses were male, almost all the workers were male. And uh, so it was a pretty big uphill battle to um, change things, but, uh, you know, it was worth a shot for sure. Right, I, I right, definitely, right. <laughs> I mean, through the UPS strike, the actual rebellion of that and the beauty of just being out there when you were so disgruntled right, <laughs> at right. work was very liberating. I mean, I don't know that my reaction to it was normal <laughs> <laughs> because my family didn't depend on my check. And I found that a lot of part-timers were in the same position. I think the union worried a lot that people would cross the picket line and not have a lot of allegiance toward the union. But the truth was that all the part-timers had other jobs. They were only at UPS for the health benefits. Right. Oh, right, right, right. And so they just started picking up. You didn't see them on the picket line. They started right. picking up those missing hours at the other job. And so often on the picket line, it was me because I had been, I think, appointed. Yeah, appointed steward. We had no part-time stewards before the strike. But the fear, well, I should, I mean, you can't really skip Ron Carey, right? Right, I mean, right. you can't. So, yeah, so, so just to sort of back up, so, so since you started in 99. I started in 90. You would have been through I was two. a TDU activist. Okay. I, TDU is Teamsters for a Democratic Union. And uh, the only information I ever saw while I was loading trucks was their newspaper, which used to be called the Convoy Dispatch. And I would find it on the floor of the package cars. We'd find it in the flo- on uh-huh. the floor of the feeders. Right. And it would come to us from other hubs. Um, Vermont, 
what would you say about union history in Vermont? It's a little bit, um, sclerotic. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good word. Yeah. Um, so, so like there was times even during the strike where I went down to the Barry picket line because they had the granite quarries and they had a, a more sense of solidarity, I think, than our picket line had in Williston. It was just a nice break to, you know, talk union stuff and not be arguing with people about whether they should cross the line. My picket line was very contentious. So, so, so TDU yeah, so is when, a reform group within right. the Teamsters that started way before I ever got there. I want to say back in the 70s. I, I think so, yeah. Um, because I don't know what people know about Teamster history, but we were pretty mobbed up for a while. And there was a lot of undemocratic things going on. People were beaten. The conventions were not democratic. Um, TDU rose up and, you know, people can look up that history and all. But they're basically about um, giving the power back to the rank and file and having the rank and file run things, having the rank and file on negotiating committees, having, you know, group grievances. And and I was all about that at first. And in fact, when did you start hearing getting TDU stuff, seeing TDU stuff at work? Well, the first time I saw a newspaper, I sent money in to get more because I wanted more information. And I just couldn't. I mean, Was, was that before the strike? Oh, yeah, way before the strike, soon after I started there. I'm a reader. Um, I think, you know, my most formative book was probably The Grapes of Wrath, and my most Uh formative music was Bob Marley. So, So you you know, (laughs) I sort of just was there uh, by accident. (laughs) And um, I was willing when the strike came around. um, Okay, so TDU wanted to try to defeat the Teamsters leaders who were bureaucratic and non-democratic in in a particular election. I don't remember what year. Um, the old guard split the ticket and they ran two guys. And so Ron Carey, a UPS driver out of New York who ran a local down right, there, right, right. A, a Teamster official, um, was the one that the Teamsters for a Democratic he, he was the third candidate. And by them splitting their vote, he ended up getting 48% of the vote and he won in a huge, like total uh, surprise, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. a huge upset. And, you know, I mean, by that time I knew enough about him. I had campaigned for him. I had gone to all the UPS centers in Vermont, which are hours and hours apart <laughs> for, you know, minimal amount of employees. I think there was probably 800 employees in the entire state, uh, with maybe 300 at my workplace. Um, anyway, so I got involved and I didn't really face a lot of opposition. Occasionally the company uh-huh, would like right, come right. out and jerk me around a little, say, you know, you have to be on the other side of the center line of the road. And I'd be like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I'm not falling for that. So and, you know, were you, were you handing out, uh, like handing out literature for Carrie at the gates? Is that what you were doing? Yes. Mm-hmm. And convoy dispatches and, after the strike, I started a newsletter called Ups Yours. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Which is still Dawn's email address. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now we're going to get out your email, the, 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 the other part of it. That's right. Email, okay. email, <laughs> podcast, Wait, yeah, stay tuned. We'll be giving her home address soon. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Anyway, so, yeah, there was very little information. Vermonters were, I would say, fairly removed from their union, although constantly disgruntled by it. Um, I mean, you know, I don't think the union was 
horribly bureaucratic and oppressive, um, but not open and democratic. Right, we'll just, right. we'll just, you know, nobody got beat up in our basement or anything <laughs> at the right. union hall. Um, so, so in management, even I don't think really minded the initial leafleting. I right, mean, until right. until Kerry actually got elected. It, you know, it's they didn't all really theoretical. worry right, about right, much. Right, yeah, right. they just didn't worry about it. And then all of a sudden, well, in 1994, they doubled the weight limit. They went from 70 to 150 uh-huh, pounds. Right. And Kerry was in, and he right. called a one-day safety strike, and everybody was supposed to not go to work. And our local in- union official called us up and told us to go to work. And so everybody <laughs> went to work, and so we scabbed on the one-day safety strike, which will always be a right, shame right, of mine. Right. <laughs> um, so, basi- so basically, this is, Kerry at the National basically is trying to organize a one-day strike against this increase. and Against and, the weight increase, yeah. And, right. and the pro-old guard locals are telling everybody to scab. To go to work, yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sad but true. All right. And so TDU became the only place that, you know, regular rank and file members could get information that that we really could believe, you know, I mean, after I found out I'd scabbed on a strike, I was rather pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, we just kept organizing and kept organizing and you knew they were going to go after Carrie at some point if he actually stood up to them. So come 1997, the international union has hired a lot of TDU people and a lot of progressive trade unionists, a lot of uh, rank and file empowering kind of unionists. And they decide to do an actual real rank and file contract campaign. And so that too had me going center to center, driving down to Brattleboro after work and, and leafleting the cars in the parking lot. And we had the right to do that. And, you know, so, and I, I, I have to say, I didn't get a lot of help. I, I kept trying to organize people. I, I, I don't really consider myself a very good organizer. (laughs) I was more of, you know, a activist, just, uh, I couldn't seem to bring other people along with me, but there was a lot of intense retaliation, uh, later after the UPS strike. And, you know, that can kind of shift and right, right, your, right. your cohorts right. away. So w- when you were doing that um, before the strike, before the were, strike, were you getting any um, pushback from your local, which I assume was still in the hands of the old guard? Yeah, the local was not particularly thrilled. Well, no, I, sh- I should take that back. Until I had the n- newsletter, the lo- I was fine with the local. Uh-huh. In fact, when initially, when 97 came around and the local saw, and probably all the locals in the country saw right. the potential for a part-time scab, they thought, boy, we better include these people in the union and created a whole bunch of part-time stewards, shifts that had had to wait until the end of the shift for a driver to get there to complain about something, <laughs> now had a voice right, right. on the shift. And, and I was, I had been going to union meetings. Um, I don't think I'd been saying all that much. I mean, I don't think my union officials were really thrilled with Carrie. So I probably was uh, pegged right off as a troublemaker, but maybe a useful troublemaker. Right in advance of the strike, I was appointed steward, and I, I don't think I ever filed a grievance or anything. I didn't have enough time until after, uh-huh, right. and there was plenty to do after. Um, but yeah, so we were thrown out on the picket line for, uh, I guess, 11, 11 work days. 
So, and, yeah. Yeah. So, so since, uh, you know, I think very few Americans these days have had the experience of going <laughs> on strike. Can you just talk a little bit about what actually going on strike was like and sure. sort of like, what did you think was going to happen? How did, how did your coworkers feel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I thought what was going to happen is that everybody was going to feel the same as me about it, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that it would be like a day off of school, you know, some kind of great liberation right, right, right. and this rebellion. And, and I was just psyched as could be. I mean, I yeah, was talking right. a mile a yeah. minute. I was like, yeah, we did it. Yeah, screw them. And not everybody was like that. In fact, I was in a very small Mm -hmm. minority because people weren't in my position. Their paychecks were so crucial. And these some of these UPS drivers, they make a very good living by working a ridiculous amount of hours very hard. But they had some big houses to pay for and some mortgage (laughs) payments that – I mean, I had a, a dilapidated house, a mortgage payment of three seventy-five a month, and a construction worker husband who was, you know, consistently right, right, going right. to work. So, over time, I came to understand that <laughs> my mood was, <laughs> was <not> this, <laughs> right. and we initially had drivers that were like, "No way, I, I'm going in, I'm going in there." Oh, wow. And so we had literal verbal fights on the picket line trying to keep some of these guys out because. In places like Chicago, where they did running pickets and they right, stopped right, the right. scabs from making the deliveries, that was not the case <laughs> at my center. I mean, there was guys leaning on the fence talking to management yeah, about, you yeah, know, yeah. How the Teamsters this and the Teamsters that, you know, and dissing us while we're talking to the press. And But the beauty of the Teamster strike was they used rank and file workers as spokespeople. They didn't have, you know, right. guys suits. in suits. Um, you know, talking about slinging packages. <laughs> they had, you know, part-time workers that that looked like everybody else. You know that, and and over time, the jobs had gotten worse. The corporate attack from what, like, say, the '70s, was relentless. The pe- pensions had completely gone away. Wow. I mean, really, over yeah. that time, I mean, we still had one at UPS, and they came after it every contract. Um, I mean, everything went away. So, I, oh, go ahead. So, yeah, that's okay. No, I, I wanted to ask. So let's let's go back and talk about the negotiations. You know, what was the reason for the strike? What were they trying okay. to win? Well, everything. But the message had to be tailored. I mean, there were many things that were desired, but only certain things can be Publicize. It's ideal to publicize the things that are in common with the rest of society, and that is the part-timing of America. The fact mm. that used to be that one job used to support a family, and now there's three and four jobs in a family that are not full-time and don't have benefits. And, you know, I mean, at UPS, the reason they get people in that door is they offer health benefits to part-time employees right. and a pension. I'm going to get a pension in a few years. Wow. Like, <laughs> that's like. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, yeah. it may it may have been screwed into half of its value by then by the Teamsters right, right, and the right. UPS, but hopefully it'll be good. <laughs> you know, there's a certain precariousness right, right. to a pension forever because of how much they've been right. attacking them. It's, it's a pension is just a promise, right? And when you're young and working at UPS. You don't ever most people don't last the two years that it takes to get vested in a pension. And so uh, that money that is paid into the fund, it kind of encourages turnover so that that money can go to the employees who stay. And, you know, there's many unfairnesses that you try to settle in contracts and it's right. hard to get them all. Right. But but that, so the big issue, though, was uh, trying to. Part time. 
Yeah, stop the bleeding from full-time jobs to part-time jobs. Right, because in 1976, UPS had finally negotiated part-timers. Until then, everybody that worked there was full-time. They loaded their own trucks. Oh, wow. And so in 76, they first got part-timers, and they started paying them the same as the full-timers. And then they started dropping the wages back, and they started Uh dropping it back. So. On my shift, there was one woman who had been there long enough to get the big pay. In fact, she just retired last year. But the rest of us had, you know, had our wages dwindled down until we were at $9 an hour starting on that, you know, 3.30 shift. And the drivers were, you know, around 20 or 25, you know, a big difference. And that'll split a labor force up. So the rank and file campaign had tried to figure out how to get everybody's issues so that everybody felt like they had a stake in the contract negotiations. And the public issue was the issue that the entire country had gone through. And that was that corporations were all going to part-time to avoid giving benefits. And there were many people at UPS who were punching out after working my shift and then punching back in again to work an entire another 20-hour shift who were being paid as a part-timer for both shifts. Oh, so they literally had two (laughs) part-time jobs with UPS. UPS. Yep. (laughs) That could easily have been combined into full-time. So that was a big deal in the negotiations, to combine those kind of jobs, the the preload loading of the trucks and the air drivers into one job to make full-time jobs. And we did end up winning huge concessions from UPS on that that they fought tooth and nail till now. I mean, yeah, they're yeah. still grieving about no, that. Jesus. I mean, what? that's 20 years. Yeah, yeah, 20, <laughs> the 20-year right. grievance. So that they, they made the agreement and then they didn't implement it, basically. And right, I yeah. mean, you know, it's all grieve now, uh, you know, work now, grieve later, later right. type thing, and you can be fired for refusing and... You know, I mean, ideally you get 20 or 30 people to refuse with you to cover your ass. Right, right. I mean, there's strength in numbers, but, um, you know. So there were a bunch of issues, but the, one of the big ones was this part-timer issue, and that was what they ended up sort of publicly calling strike over was that. And how many people went out on strike? This was a national uh, strike. I want right? to say like 180,000, 200,000. Okay. Yes, it was national. And the pilots went with us, even though they had abandoned the Teamsters a few years before right, that. Right, right, right. And uh, that was helpful. And we had a ton of international solidarity that was incredibly helpful. What, what kind of international solidarity? Um, well, all the unions that deal with UPS in Europe were on board and were, had plans in effect to start shutting down UPS over there. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And and you talked about this being a rank and file approach, there being a rank and file campaign and a rank and file approach to the strike. And one of the things you talked about was just the idea that rank and file, you know, UPS workers Matter. were going to we're going to do the media. Right. We're going to talk to the media instead of being some and you know, do the negotiations. That was the first time I think they put rank and filers on the negotiating committee, which uh, meant a lot more transparency. I mean, before that. It all happened in secret. You didn't have any idea what they were talking about. You know, they'd just delay and delay and delay, you know, around August 15th. They'd still be talking about it. And by October, you'd hear your contract got settled. <laughs> and you'd get, like, whatever, back paid August 1st for whatever, you know, crappy little raise they negotiated. But I got a huge raise out of the strike, too. I 
I would say my wages went up $10 an hour over the course of the next five years. $10 an hour. So they almost doubled. (laughs) They almost doubled. Yeah. Well, they weren't very good. (laughs) And unfortunately, they left off the unborn, though, what they call the new hires. Yeah. We you just still hires people at like I don't even know ten bucks an hour. I, I probably I mean it's very yeah. small. Which has got to be that because isn't the, the minimum wage in Vermont is close to ten dollars uh, well, yeah, an hour I now? I think yeah. that last year was the year that they had to start paying more in Vermont because, because of, the, of minimum, the minimum wage. Yeah. Right. But what what I do what they do a lot of times unions I guess is they leave off the people who haven't right, been right. hired yet right. in order to get gains for the people that are there. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily make great gains for the union amongst new hires. Yeah, 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 exactly. So unfortunately, you know, there's trade-offs, but yeah. And also that that is, I mean, to sort of go back to, to you know, when we were talking in our healthcare episode about how much healthcare ties people to their jobs, the fact that they can hire people for these like incredibly brutal, physically brutal jobs at minimum wage part-time just because, because they offer, they offer health care yeah yeah to your whole family i mean there was lots of guys there lots of men there who had a bunch of kids and had a full-time job self-employed guys uh that's their big draw and now they're cutting that too you know it's just crazy but anyway so that brought us to the strike and we had lots of rank and file updates from from teamsters for a democratic union uh, that I could go around and, and hand out. And by that time, people were actually interested. Right, right, right. They're on the picket right, line, so they're right. reading anything you hand them. And it's a it's a great time to actually broaden, you know, do working class politics right. if you can get them to focus for a minute <laughs> right. beyond their own situation. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's where we were. And it was wild. I was there every day. I, I probably was the most consistent person. I, I got interviewed. I mean, that's how your rank and file activists gain confidence. So yeah, so and I became an activist after that for sure. So what was what was it like when the strike was settled? Because I, I remember this very uh-huh. I remember this very intensely. <laughs> I mean, I, I was in Iowa and uh, you know active in a UE local at the time, and I mean I remember like it was on national te- like Ron Kerry was on national television announcing the settlement of the strike because we only had three channels back then. And uh, and I remember like thinking like this is like well this is like the moment that I'm gonna remember where I was forever where I like sort of like the <laughs> JFK you were yeah. like the JFK missile crisis right, kind of right. thing like what, you know and, and I still remember saying like working people have been taking it on the chin <laughs> for decades and today we fought back or so you know fought back and won sure. something and very yeah well it was perceived as a huge victory and I think it was a huge victory and it it was a huge victory within the Teamsters itself simply because they went another way they went a way that includes the workers mm-hmm. and that and it turned out to be successful which was you know like <laughs> twice as right good, right you know? right like um I thought it was the beginning of great things for TDU, for the Teamsters, for, you know, and and it was right, <laughs> for right, a while. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, things changed. It, it, there was a lot more improvement. But, you know, the company, well, Clinton almost stopped the strike, too. That was a scary part. We're talking about how it was affecting the economy and you know, and I thank God he didn't. We, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. if we'd have had a Republican, I'll bet he would have. Um, but fortunately, we had a, a quote Democrat finger quotes Democrat right. in the White House. And, yeah, it was a huge victory. I was ecstatic. We all went back in thinking things would get better, uh-huh. that 
There was like your coworkers too. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. so. I, I mean, I, I think they were a little tiny bit worried, but there's a lot of trust for management. So right, right, I mean, right, right, right. They may right. have had their opinions change once we got back in right, there because right, right. things were pretty nasty. Yeah. Um, you know, they were going to make us earn every red cent. Right, right. <laughs> we had gained in contract negotiations and resist the full-time jobs. And I don't know, UPS is just tremendous at not following the contract. So we knew we knew it would be a struggle, but it seemed like maybe we'd be able to struggle more together. Like the strike had brought right, us closer right, right. together and more people knew about the issues because finally we had some information and it made me decide to start Ups Yours because right, right. the idea that people would have scabbed on the strike. I think management actually talked people out of doing that because they were worried when we went back in those people would be earmarked for uh, danger for, right 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 <laughs> if they scab so they protected the they, they, they from wanted themselves. to keep, they wanted to keep the pro management people safe <laughs> exactly <laughs> Exactly. Right. And so then we went back in. I was completely empowered. I mean, I was a steward now. Um, for the next year, I talked to management about the contract. And I mean, they kept telling me how they wanted to follow it. And I didn't follow many, file many grievances. I trusted them. And oh, my God, for a, nearly a year, I hardly grieved. And then in the next year, I wrote a contract every goddamn time. I, I mean, I wrote a grievance every time I had a chance because... <laughs> It was clear to me they were just lying to me. They would lie to me and do the same thing the next day. (laughs) So I had written 200 grievances over the course. I don't even know, you know, what the time span was. Uh, But the union removed me. (laughs) Oh, is that right? Yeah. (laughs) I was um, creating too much work for our top-down official who continued right. to get reelected and so and they didn't well they didn't want to deal with uh, arbitrations that were coming out of these grievances and that sort of thing I don't think they wanted to deal with part-time complaints I think they prefer that we turn over and just kept putting our money in and right. shutting our right, mouths right, right. <laughs> and but you know we talked about that in the newsletter well, for well what were the years. What were the changes? I have two questions. One is, what what were the changes that were actually made after the contract? It sounds like wages were one thing, but and then then talk to us a little bit about well, your newsletter. Well, the big change was that they were ordered to create. I can't remember how many jobs, but yeah. it was in the tens of yeah, thousands yeah, tens of. of thousands. Um, Part, uh, you know, combined part-time jobs to make a full-time job. And eventually that did come to pass. I think I want to say it took like <laughs> four <laughs> years, you know, right, or right. more for them to make that initial, you know, to reach that initial level. And then all the contracts after that have included language and they've resisted it uh, hook, line and sinker all the way. So I'm they, sure they were they, still fighting it now. They were required to create so many full-time jobs, though, out of the by combining part-time jobs okay. that were consecutive that people were already working. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that was big. And 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 you saw. So they they fought that, but did you see some of that happen? Oh, absolutely. It happened over the next few years. It's just that they dragged their feet. So there were some people who bid into those. We call them combo jobs, and we still have them. There's. Uh, I think there's, there was three when I left on my shift. Um, but basically, they paid a ton of back pay back to the date the strike was settled. Uh-huh. 
and then dragged their feet for like three or four years in creating these jobs. So when these people got these jobs, they got the difference in money between their part-time job and what they would have gotten if they'd have worked 40 hours at a full-time wage. And so a lot of people bid them just looking for that initial payment. Right, right, right. But unfortunately, the union... Um, the way the union seniority worked, the next year full-timers were allowed to take those jobs from the part-timers oh, yeah. in the bidding cycle. Mm. And so it, I don't know if over the long run that was looked at as the huge gain for the part-timers that it was initially. I mean, the pool of full-time jobs was bigger. It right. was just that those people got kicked out of the jobs they got in the strike. And there was some, you know, grousing about that. But, you know, there always is. Things aren't perfect. Uh, and then you decided to start your um, your newsletter. <laughs> yes, I did, because I was appalled at how little people knew about, you know, contract neg- negotiations, unions. I mean, at UPS, you go in and you... S- you sign a huge packet. I just saw it in the um, in my stuff yesterday. It's full of like it's a new employee packet, and it's full of union stuff. Uh, basically, you sign the right over to represent yourself uh-huh. to the union, and then you sign up for dues. Right, blah, right. Blah blah blah. And you know when you're being hired and you go through that, it all goes by in a blur. You don't right, even have right, a clue right. what you're signing. And so later on when people get their paychecks right. <laughs> is when they realize what's going on and they, you know, they take 50 bucks a week until right, that right, $600 right, right. is fulfilled. And then your union dues, which is, I, I don't know, three times your hourly wage or something. But yeah. So I lost track of the question. I have to. Admit. Oh, it was about the, the newsletter. <laughs> oh, so, oh yeah. So, so, so this was, this was again, essentially, essentially before the internet. Right. And so this was, this well, was no, the was internet existed because I was able to go search stuff, but I had never used a computer before. I think I got a donated computer from Chris in Montpelier. I can't oh, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Chris Wood. Oh, yeah, and, okay, yeah. uh, yeah. And so I learned how to use a computer by like searching out cartoons. The newsletter was like, it was like really, um, text, uh, intense mm-hmm, dense. Mm-hmm. There was like two cartoons to a legal size page, but then there was just a ridiculous amount of text. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> people told me I had to make the text bigger and, you know, quit putting so much in there, but I just couldn't resist. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely, uh, I think it might be online somewhere still. Oh, good. Well, if it's online, then we'll put, we'll post a link to it. Okay. I'm making John. I'm like giving Jonathan a giant yeah. list of things to post. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then this 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 got distributed like not just in Vermont, oh yeah. Right? All uh, well, because of being involved in TDU and my level of activism, obviously ratcheted way up after the UPS strike. I met a lot of people within the Vermont labor movement mm-hmm. who came to the picket line. And to show solidarity. I mean, all of that, those feelings where you're on the picket line and somebody comes by with like a simple box of donuts or, you know, a pizza or something like that, that that amount of solidarity keep you going for weeks. You know, people just make small gestures just, you know, for future reference. (laughs) Um, If you see a picket line out there, guys, bring bring donuts. donuts. (laughs) That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. About a month ago, I realized I hadn't had a donut in a year. And I was like, oh, I retired from yeah. UPS. Donuts were like management's tool to get us to do anything. 
That's why if you see if you see a donut in people's Twitter handle these days, that means they're UPS management. Uh, that, that <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, Up's Yours uh, started out like that. At, at the beginning, I was still a steward, and I had a steward from every center in Vermont who would write a monthly column, a very little brief thing about what was going on. But we actually named people. We, like, talked about bosses' names. We, you know, had cartoons of ostriches with their heads in the sand, and we'd put a boss's name over <laughs> it, you know. And, you know, there was a lot of mocking. <laughs> and it felt wonderful. I mean, I, immediately my work situation changed quite a lot. <laughs> I would say the newsletter was just as bad as the stewardship at drawing flack mm -hmm. and that they those two things should definitely not have been done by the same person um, because things in the newsletter would get in the way of talks with management yeah. you know yeah. like their dander would be up all the time <laughs> right and so in other words you're trying to settle a grievance and they're like they're like, uh, yeah, they're pissed newsletter. off about something you yeah. wrote in the <laughs> newsletter about them and it has nothing to do with the grievance right right but they're not moving. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in retrospect, things probably could have been done differently with more people. <laughs> well, it's always better to have more people, right? Something yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, so, I, you know, I, that five years went by fairly quickly. There was a ridiculous amount of grievances about safety. Oh, you said something about... Um, we were going to be asked the question, what is the most ridiculous thing your yeah. boss has ever done? What's the done? craziest thing you've ever seen a boss do? Uh, the craziest thing I ever saw one of my bosses do was, I don't know if people remember the anthrax scare when white powder was like being shipped around oh, to the right, senators right, right, and right. stuff. And, and so we were like warned. I mean, at that time of the day or at that time in history, we were told we couldn't open the doors anymore because someone was going to like sneak in with a powder-filled package and ship it to somebody, and we wouldn't know who it was. And, and ever since, I mean, ever since, they don't open the yeah. doors all the way, even in the... But, I mean, we were like, what, terrorists can't duck? You know, like, y'all just have to duck to go under the door. But anyway, the craziest thing was this guy, Joel... Bradford. Um, he was, we get a lot of very young part-time supervisors and they're not all in the brain trust. And, you know, something had broken open <laughs> on the belt and it was white powder and everybody was wanting to shut the belt down. And he's right. like, no, 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 don't shut the belt down. He licked his finger, put it in the powder and put it in his mouth. Oh my God. <laughs> it wasn't anthrax. It was safe. And I mean, that was the dumbest thing I'd literally ever seen in UPS. No, that's, you got to keep the line moving, even if it costs <laughs> yeah, you your yeah. life, right? Yeah. And I think he's still alive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and did you see an uptick in, in sort of the awareness and activism among other UPS workers after the strike? I mean, had people sort of gained a kind of consciousness about the union and what was possible? I think so, a little bit. And you know, I, I just condensed five years down to nothing. Right, right, right. I mean, at first when I went into work, I was very energized and, and safety issues are the, are the one thing you can almost always get everyone to agree on right. if they've been in the situation. And so I organized a unanimous safety grievance. Every single person on the shift signed on and it was about those heavyweight packages. There had still been a lot of, um, resentment. They said that they, you know, that one day safety strike resulted in the fact that Teamsters were supposed to be able to get another Teamster member to help them with anything that was heavier than 70 pounds. The problem is there aren't two Teamsters on the truck. 
Right. <laughs> you know, there's two Teamsters within the warehouse, but they don't want to slow the belt down. They don't really want to do the job of managing to right, have right, two right, Teamsters right. carry. So most of the guys just heave the 150-pound package in their truck. Yeah. And there's tons of damages because of that and tons of injuries. Um, so we, we organized a unanimous safety grievance, and there was one person on the grievance who later went into management who went into management and told them that I intimidated her into signing the grievance, and there was this potential cloud of harassment hanging over right. me for a while there. Right. And I think we managed to get by that. Right, right, right. <laughs> and she did go into management, which sort of, you know, she was just uh, worried that they yeah, were going to be mad at her. Right. <laughs> Um, but so we did a lot of that. And over time, uh, unfortunately, their focus, they were focused more on me uh, than on everyone else. <laughs> right. And, it, you know, my work environment got very difficult um, and I started having to do a ton of work. <laughs> um, and over the course of my final 10 years there, I had six, six work surgeries. Jesus. Oh, geez. So, so they assigned you extra work or heavy work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, extra truck. Not just extra boxes, a whole extra right. truck. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, because, and there was rules. I mean, I was going through some memorabilia um, yesterday that I found just fascinating, but like two things took up two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and these were crates packed full of paperwork. Um, one was a conversation that I had recorded in the office that was, I think I must have filed a harassment grievance against my immediate supervisor. And um, I had started to record things around that time. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't sure who was trustable. <laughs> right, right. And so, I, you know, the law in Vermont that was that if one person knows about it, you Right. They're allowed to record, which I think is strange, but <laughs> it is the law. And so I had a transcript of this conversation with all my beltmates and the boss about how they all thought I was being picked on. And, um, you know, they were in there to sort of testify to the boss that I was being treated differently. Right. Because they, like, started rules like if I was walking around, it's it's illegal in the contract for a supervisor to perform labor, union labor. Right, right. And every day they do it. Every day you, yeah, you yeah, catch yeah, them yeah. here, you catch them there. They're either helping someone to go faster or they're just completely doing their job because right, the right. person's given up and is pissed off and is getting yelled at in the office. Right, or, right, you know, right. who knows what. And um, so I would file grievances about supervisors working. And then whoever, you know, one of us, one of the rank and file, right. usually it was the most senior driver, <laughs> right. would get paid for that hour's work. Um, and so they started a bunch of new rules. No going to the water fountain will supply you with a UPS water bottle. You know, no bathroom breaks unless you ask first. And so there was all this, um, you know, harassment. And it's really hard to prove. <laughs> you know, they have to, like, have intent and not just be inept. So go, going to the bathroom, not, not being able to go to bathroom without supervision is just a theme of our podcast uh, come up in other with other workers being monitored. Yeah. Going to the bathroom is, is apparently a, an ex, a time of extreme um, nervousness for. Right. Uh, for it's un-American. It's un-American to, to use the bathroom at work. That's right. <laughs> well, their fear was that everywhere in the, on the shift there was contract violations, and that you know my one walk to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> you see more violations. Once, once I began writing the grievances and did two hundred in a year. 
um, yeah, they knew they were going to get it, but you know, that's, and basically I, I would have to say that I ended up being restricted to my work area. I didn't win out on that one, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, kind of pissed me off. As is labor history, you know, sort of summarizing labor history in the United States, when workers stand up for themselves and win, all the forces of evil descend on them. Um, right. And, and right. usually in the form and of... There was many forces of evil within the Teamsters Union and within UPS. Right, right, right. So I mean, so it was you, said in the article, too, that um, one of the lead negotiators at the negotiations told Kerry he was dead on his way out when it was mm. finally settled, meaning, you know, within the Teamsters. Inside the In other words, one of the lead negotiators on, the, on his own side... No, no, on the uh, other, on the other side, side, I see. Said, we're going to get rid of you, yeah. basically. And, so and they did. And that's what they did, right? So it's the company and the government and, you know, and the uh, sort of the worst elements inside the union all conspire then to... to right, to, because the, the government had come into the Teamsters under a consent decree under Rudy Giuliani when he was... Oh, right, right. Way back when. And, and that's how we actually got rank and file elections right. before I want to say that before Kerry was elected, we never even got to vote. We only sent delegates to Vegas to be carried around like Roman emperors. And, right. um, you know, uh, yeah. So right. the one time we did get to, and we still do get to vote. It's just hard to, uh, <laughs> it's just hard to get a candidate to vote for. Right, right, right. <laughs> but that was the big change. So the government basically said you can't do these delegated elections anymore. The whole system, that system is corrupt. So you have right. to do a and, national. But then the government ended up going after Ron Carey right. Right. after the UPS strike from within the union and accused him of something that he was later cleared of before he died. Right. So, so also in the uh, in long um, tradition of sort of U.S. politics is that everybody should get to vote, but you have to vote for the right person. It's the Latin American approach, right? right. So we want right. every Latin American country to be democratic unless they elect the wrong people. And then we have to, you know, we have to wipe that out and start over. Right. Yeah, and, you clearly don't know what you're doing. Right. So... Um, <laughs> So in the end, they they went after him on a bunch of corruption charges, and the charges they were able to get him out of the union on the chart based ba- essentially based right. on the charges, which later he was then cleared of. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and they made his older years pretty miserable. Right. I think. Yeah, this, and you know the main point was to get him out of the union and to right. break that coalition of TDU and you know other you know sort of other more pro democratic locals in the in the union in the teamsters that had taken over the union right yeah which they damn yeah. Shame. yeah and also i mean i think i think it's also worth noting that the 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 um you know the thing that he was charged with was money laundering to get union dues money into like liberal nonprofits. Yeah, wasn't right. it like democratic party activists that yeah. really got the yeah trouble? and so it was really it was sort of like the it was the liberals in essentially his administration who actually did the shit that he got in trouble for, right? Not right. the like radical rank and file oriented, right? Not wing. the trade unionists, right? Right. right? He got in some, yeah. It was it was some transferring of money that the right. Democratic right. Party, you know, fundraisers it's had. Calling us, we can. Right, right. <laughs> Twenty years later. So yeah, yeah, but it was like I mean, it wasn't the Center for American Progress, but it was people like that, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> 
you know, so so Kerry, after after the strike, after several years after the strike, he gets removed from the union. But I think, you know, the legacy of TDU and of that strike, they continue to resonate, right? I mean, the union is a much more democratic union. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And the victories of that strike, you know, as much as you have to continue to fight for them, they're still there in the contracts, oh, yeah. right? Plus, you have... You have it within your work history that you just stood up, you know, like right. it's um, it's just so rare. Everybody gets beaten down, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's hard not to get beaten down over the course of your uh, your work life. Um, it's hard not to make compromises with yourself. And I don't know that feeling of just being out there with your middle finger up saying, no, no work from us today. <laughs> and not until we get something dealt with. That is just yeah. a great feeling. It really is. I, I, you know, not everybody felt it, but I did. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. I'm, yeah. Right. And it was, it was rough going back in. There was payback. There was lots of resentment yeah, yeah. from management. And in mm -hmm. fact, some of the people that worked through that strike physically didn't continue with UPS. Some of those supervisors, I mean, some of the entertainment on the line was watching them. I mean, at the end of the day, when oh, they, they had would to come do your back, work. Oh, yeah. yeah, they would take those trucks out of there full of packages and come back limping and, you know, and everybody on the picket line looking <laughs> at them and pointing, look at Sansone, man, he's not going to last. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's amazing. What a, what a shock to have to do the uh, the actual workers' jobs and find out that they're horrendous, right? Right. Yeah. The the better thing would have been if we could have like played management for eleven <laughs> days, you know, and give them shit about not bringing back packages <laughs> right, and stuff. Right. <laughs> uh, that was a great uh, a great story, a great podcast. How should we wrap this up? So I, I think we should wrap it up with uh, what I'm going to insist in as the new uh, standard question for everyone, which is, what's your favorite beer? Switchback. A Burlington beer. I'm going to give a shout out to um, a local Athens, Ohio um, uh, uh, craft brew place here called uh, Little Fish. And it is the most unpopular beer in my family, but I very much enjoy a summer beer called Smoked Hellas, which has a, a sort of, uh, uh, well, it has a smoky uh, taste. Oh, it's nice. a very light beer with a smoky taste to it. It's, it's uh, really That's unique. And I, I love it. It's, it's perfect for the summer. I'd probably never drink it in the fall or winter, but it's a perfect summer beer. Oh, well, and you great. bring it to picnics and no one will drink it. That's right. That's that's the key thing. It's always that's about finding. That's the best finding, to find a beer people hate. It's right, always right. best to find Switch something back, you that's love. Not true. <laughs> All right, Jonathan, what do you what do you got? Uh, so I've been drinking the uh, the Green Mountain Lager uh, Zero Gravity Zero Gravity, which is a which is a local brewery here that was originally the in house brewery of uh, American Flatbread, sort of a gourmet pizza place. Oh, nice. And now they've moved out All and they've right. got their own brewery. Shout down. out to Burlington Beer. So yeah, we're 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 in I'm I'm gonna miss the, the Vermont beer. All Good right. to meet you, Sam. Yeah, nice to meet you too, Don. I hope we can have you back again uh, on, to talk about other other topics as we go along. I hope you'd be willing to do that with us. You've been listening to the Smash Up Derby, the podcast about working class politics. If you like what you hear, head over to our website, smashuppodcast.com. There's links to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and uh, sign up for our email list. Follow us on Twitter. And uh, there's also an ask or comment section if you've got questions or comments. 
Uh, you can also follow us or tweet at us on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast. Thanks for listening.